Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Savvy Dentist Podcast, the show where great dentistry meets great business. And today I'm delighted to be joined by fellow podcaster Jerry Jones, who runs the Jerry Jones Radio Show, coming all the way from Salem in Oregon. How are you, Jerry? I am fantastic. It's uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be on your on your podcast. And um, I've uh, I've listened to a couple of your episodes. I've read your book. Which, by the way, before we even get started, if there's a dentist listening to this that hasn't that has not read your book for some reason, they need to read it because what you cover on retention is like that's like the hidden secret in dentistry that nobody talks about. I I was so excited to, to see that you that that a dentist understood it and was actually writing about it. It was really cool. So um, just a, a plug for your book right out of the gate. Well, well, thank you, mate. That's the that's the quickest one I've had yet. But I really appreciate that. And I, and, I, and and the thing is, I really appreciate meeting a kindred spirit more than anything, Jerry, because you know I know you've written on the subject of your marketing and all sorts of different kinds of marketing. But I also know that you're a big fan of retention and. Yeah, making sure the dentists retain their patient base. So it is always nice to meet a kindred spirit in that regard. Um, Jerry, I wanted to just talk a little bit about your backstory because it is really rather fascinating. You know, people generally don't end up in this line of work in a linear fashion. There's usually a few zigs and zags in the career path. I'm, I'm curious to understand your journey. How did you get to the point because you're so well known in marketing circles and I know you help lots of doctors in the States with their marketing, but how did you get to that point? What's the, what's been your you know, path to this point? It's been a, it's been a wild ride. Um, for sure. I'm, I'm, I think I'm marking year 23 coming up here in just a few months. Um, in the last, uh, 15 years, um, I've spent as a dental practice owner, um, which is kind of odd cause I'm not a dentist and here in the States, it's not, um, not customary for non-dentists to own practices in many states. It's illegal. Um, in the state of Oregon, it's actually illegal to own a dental practice. And so I owned a dental office. Um, I know, isn't that clever? Oh, wow. uh, one okay. word change, right? Um, <laughs> it, it has to do with, <laughs> it had to do with patient files. I just couldn't own patient files. And so I was more than happy to let the dentist own the files and, yeah. and I ran the practice. So, um, or the office rather, but, um, so it's been weird and crazy, but, uh, 15 years ago I'd been in the, you know, the, the, on the marketing side of dentistry, um, for a number of years. And I kept running into doctors who would just, you know, tell me about how frustrated they were with their staff and with managing the practice and with, you know, getting new patients in the door and keeping their patients. And I mean, it was just, you know, one, one doctor after another, the same thing over and over again. I thought, you know, it, I know we're getting them results. I know our marketing is producing calls for them. Mm. Um, they didn't track the phone calls and they didn't score the, you know, they, this was back when call tracking numbers didn't exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, I mean, I intuitively knew that we were, you know, getting, getting them business, but, um, you know, I, they just always had an excuse. And so I thought, uh, there's, I will get a lot out of opening an, a new business that would be a dental office because I could learn a, what these challenges are firsthand, how to solve them. Mm. And B, I could find out if my marketing really was working. And so, um, you know, five, six years, seven years into it, I thought I'm going to open a dental office. And so, um, I went out and literally no patients, no doctor, no staff. <laughs> I mean, I didn't have anything <laughs> except for, a, you know, a suite, an office suite full of equipment and, um, you know, and a $250,000 investment to boot. And, uh, so, I mean, I didn't have much of a choice to make it work or not. I mean, I had to make it work. And, um, so, you know, just pure grit for the first couple of years. And, um, lo and behold, all the complaints that Dennis had about managing a practice and, 
and and the contents within uh, were in fact a giant pain in the butt. Um, <laughs> and, and and I and you got I to experience it firsthand. I did, yes, and it was, it, it, and so I mean, I got a lot out of it. I got, and I say I, past tense, I got a lot out of it because I mean, just literally a couple weeks ago, I signed the the sales agreement and um and and cashed a big fat check um selling my office. So, Congratulations! Um, thank you. It was a it was a great. I feel so light, you know. It's like um, <laughs> not to get too far off the track already, but no, no. Uh, it's good. Yesterday, our our city had a a, a water quality alert. So we had blue green algae in our drinking water source. And so the entire city, you know, can't use the water today, literally today, the day we're recording this. So you can't drink the water. I mean, you know, you can, but you'll probably get sick. And if you're young or old or infirm, you know, you'll probably die and all that kind of stuff. And so this morning I got up and I said to my wife, you know, it's a really nice feeling not to have to think about or even give two shits about what that dental office is going through this morning, (laughs) wondering what they're going to do about water. You know, it was like, oh, man, it's such a nice feeling not to not to have a dental assistant send me a text message telling me they're quitting or they're pregnant or the hygienist wants to go find another job or the doctors are pissed off about it. So I'm uh, sorry about all my expletives. I, yeah, I you go for it. Yeah, you, you be you. That's all good. I do cuss once in a while, but it, it's just been so nice. And so, I, I mean, I really appreciate both sides, you know, having started it and what it takes to start an office and grow a practice and even grow through the recession. We had like 25 to 28% growth from 2007 all the way into like 2011. So, I mean, we had this tremendous growth even. And, um, you know, we ended up, we had one time, I think I had four doctors there, you know, working all sorts of hours and, you know, 10 or 15 staff. I don't even remember. It's a good memory to not have um, in a lot of cases. But, um, you know, I mean, it's so it's, it's been a weird and wild, you know, way to get here. I mean, I started working for a dentist um, not not too far out of college. Uh, I, I, found, I he had a, a, a newsletter that was sold to dentists and he was looking for an editor. And so yeah. I, I hired on as an editor for a financial newsletter that was targeted targeted at dentists. And a few, you know, like a year later, I ended up buying a, a piece of the company and um uh, just through, you know, strange happenings and, um, you know, ended up, uh, taking a, a, a piece of the business that was struggling and mm-hmm. turned it into a nice business. I sold it to one of my employees a few years later. And, um, and then a few years after that, I ended up getting back into it again because, uh, the gentleman that bought it from me, who uh, it just wasn't a good fit for him. Yeah. Um, he went on to start another business that did fantastically well. So, um, here I am, you know, 22, 23 years later, and it's been just, Jerry, I've just lost you, mate. Hang on. Last time I checked, 17 businesses start, sold, or bought. You know, I mean, so. Jerry, I just lost that bit. So it's 22 years later. We might just get you to repeat that bit. Sorry, mate. Oh, yeah, no problem. Um, yeah, so, you know, 17, 18 businesses bought, sold, or start started over the last, you know, 22 years. So um, it's been crazy. A dental assisting school I had at one point. Um, that was an interesting um, business. Uh, also involved in uh, two other dental offices. Um, wow. So an ownership in two other dental offices. So it's been just, you know, it's been just a, uh, a fascinating journey. And and so here I am now, uh, you know, I, I for the first time in, I think since I was, uh, I was telling my mom this, the first time since I was 14, I only have one job. <laughs> and um, so, you know, it's like one job, that's easy. I could do that in like an hour a day, right? So, yeah, I know, how relaxing. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really nice. I only have one thing to think about. And um, but you know, Jerry Jones Direct is is the company uh, still um, been been around for twenty two years. So well done, um, yay. Yeah, it's yeah. been crazy. Um, I mean, I'd ask you the same question. How, how Jesse? How did you go from dentist to you know, practice management, entrepreneur, advising other dentists, well, you know, well, how, how did you get, because that's not, not a lot of docs take that. No, well, it's, it's, it's like your journey, it's full of twists and turns. And so I had my first uh, business when I was 17 years old. So I was in high school and I yeah, started selling football jerseys to the kids at school. And I needed some money for this event we have here called Schoolies Week, which is I, I think there must be some equivalent in the United States. It's kind of where the high school kids descend on the beach and you know, essentially drink too much and you know, do all the Spring break. Spring, Spring break. break. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so I needed yeah. some cash for that. And so I started you know, selling these football jerseys and you know, got someone to design them and someone to you know, go around and take the orders and do all that sort of stuff. And, and that turned out pretty well. But then you know, I kind of settled down and went to university, did all that, joined the military after that, spent time at sea, leading you know smaller teams and then larger teams you know traveling around the world and i had a really wild you know marvelous and wonderful time doing that but in 2002 i left the navy because i met a girl as you do and um and i left the navy to come down to canberra where, where my wife is from and so we had babies and i took over the practice and what ended up happening jerry is i created myself this job and so I didn't really have a business. I had a high-paid job. And, you know, I was happy on one hand because, you know, commercially and financially we were doing very well. And, you know, to anyone who looked in, you know, it would have looked peaches and cream. Uh, but internally I was dying because, you know, I had no spare time. I felt like that I was at the beck and call of my business. I was trying to do the dentistry by day and run the business by night. And to be honest with you, I burnt out. I was, I was really a very unhappy camper at that particular time. So in a you know i suppose in a moment of uh insanity we decided to sell everything and moved back to brisbane which is my hometown and yeah after the dust had settled for a little while and i kind of regained a bit of sleep and, and got things sorted out i i ended up um going to marketing because i've always enjoyed marketing and i started you know building websites and this is going to sound particularly random jerry i was building websites to sell you know um ebooks and all sorts of clickbank kind of products uh, back in the day when when that was a thing and so oh, yeah. do you remember that do you remember clickbank oh heck yeah yeah i you know i'm i'm not going to admit it uh, publicly but I, had, <laughs> but I had i had a clickbank account too uh and and i also was doing the same thing so yes, yeah. i remember that yeah so all too well yeah i know and you know the funny thing is is out of that though my friends from university said hey you know what a website you know, needs to look like you know how to get traffic to a website you know what a crown is you know what a bridge is can you build us a practice website so before too long, like you, you know, I was doing some marketing you know, as a done-for-you service and, and like you, we could make the phone ring and we knew that our marketing was working, uh, we, we knew that that was all happening but what ended up happening from there is the phone rang so much that the practice went under strain and you know, the systems fell apart, the team couldn't handle um, you know, the leader was you know, not you know, keeping up with everything and so really by... Yeah, I wouldn't say 10 times in their business, but certainly multiplying their business, what it amplified was the little cracks, the little faults, little fault lines, I should say. Um, and so it became a bit of a problem. So then from there, those same customers said to me, you know, Jesse, you know, we've got too many patients. How do I do this? How do I build a team? I need another dentist. I need to hire more people. You know, now I've got more people. It's really complicated. Uh, I thought I wanted new patients, you know, but 
you know, it turns out that you know, it's just made other things, you know, more fragile. So that's really, yeah. you know, how it came about. And, and now we own another dental practice, but we do it differently, uh, Jerry. We, we certainly have a much different approach to, you know, running that practice now because I learned a lot more about leverage when I ran that internet marketing business. And as I said, we now have a business rather than a job and, and that, that's been a, a key determinant for us. So, yeah, like you, a bit of a roundabout path. Yeah. Um, uh, so the uh, today, so you have a dental office in today, a, pr- a practice today, right? Yeah, we do. Um, so I, I don't know if, if your observation has been like mine. I mean, a dental practice today, or especially now where we're at here in, you know, mid 2018, um, I see really two extremes. I see uh, a small practice that is sort of the, <laughs> I mean, uh, Patty Lund, Dr. Patty Lund, yeah, would yeah. Be the extreme you know, one end where it's like, um, uh, you know, you don't even, you don't even know he's there and, you know, you have to have an invitation and he serves tea and, you know, and the biscuits that we talked about (laughs) pre-show. And, you know, I mean, that's one extreme where you can be really successful with a, you know, with a super high touch concierge type practice. I think, you you know, I think that provides lifestyle, it provides income. And then on the other end, on the other extreme, I, uh, there's this, um, you know, there's the, uh, the large practice, you know, that is, you know, it's got maybe maybe of multiple locations, but you certainly have a large staff. You have more than you know two doctors. You probably have four, five, six, ten, twenty doctors. Mm-hmm. Is your? I mean, what do you think is happening to the middle? I mean, and I won't get into what's happening to the middle class in the U.S. because I think it's kind of similar. But what's going to happen to all these docs in the middle? Because we're we're kind of killing the middle, aren't we? Yeah. Look, I agree wholeheartedly, and I think you know there's. I assume there's some similar things happening in the United States. You know, here in Australia, we're seeing you know corporate roll-ups, you know, concentration of ownership. The health insurance companies are buying up things. They're starting their own clinics. So, yeah, you know, what I'm seeing is exactly what you've said: is that middle ground is being lost, and you either need to really you know, get a degree of scale, or really get a really tight niche. And that you kind of need to go to one end of the bell curve or the other, but that middle ground is being you know, eaten away by corporates, health insurance companies. And you know, if I th- for me, I think if you want to play in that space, it's going to be a harder space because it's very competitive. Uh, and, and you know, from my observation, again, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about this, mate. There seems to be a lot of pressure on margins, uh, certainly price. Uh, is a is a consideration for many um, folk and and the the race to the bottom in terms of you know we do it cheaper than the next dude yeah seems to be a very common form of marketing from those large corporates um, is that something you've seen as well that's exactly right I mean that's the business model and and I think it you know that business model extends outside of dentistry we're seeing it right now uh, I was just reading an article in the Wall Street Journal today about uh, CVS. CVS is a huge pharmacy company. I mean, they have pharmacies or um, I don't know if they have the equivalent in Australia, but it's where you would go to get prescriptions, yes. you know, yes. filled, for, you know, and they might have, and they have other stuff there too, you know, beer, wine, some light, light amount of, you know, um, bad snack foods and makeup and, you know, contact solution, band-aids, you know, that kind of stuff. I, I just um, love the idea that you can buy a beer with your prescription. Well, shouldn't you have a beer with every prescription that you're taking? I mean, <laughs> you know, they used to sell cigarettes, but they got a conscience. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. They got a conscience and they stopped selling cigarettes. Oh, my goodness. Okay. That's the darndest thing. Um, so this company, what they're doing is they're putting the squeeze on all the independent pharmacies yeah. and, and doing it in such a way they're manipulating Medicare or government health care reimbursement rates 
and they're manipulating them so that they're now so low, the independent pharmacist cannot survive. Only their larger pharmacies can survive. And so they're going in and they literally, this was in the article, they literally are having uh, recruiters that work for the CVS, the CVS pharmacy. They have recruiters that are going into the areas where CVS exists and they know these guys are getting squeezed. These guys and gals are getting squeezed. And they are saying, hey, you know, we understand what you're dealing with. I mean, business is tough and margins are shrinking and, you know, you'd be you'd be better off just selling out to us. Mm. I mean, that's no joke. That's their recruiting strategy to, to purchase new you know, accounts, basically. Um, but uh, so that business model is 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 prevalent outside of dentistry. And the same thing is happening. You, I mean, you nailed it on the head. You can't live in the middle. You know, you can't. I mean, you're going to die. And yeah. What do you tell these guys? I mean, you know, I mean, I, I mean, I know what I tell them, but what what would you what kind of advice would you tell them? I mean, you know, I'm in the middle. I've, I'm a one doctor practice. I'm open four days a week or three days a week. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm collecting eighty thousand dollars a month. You know, I'm doing a million bucks a year. You know, I mean, what do you tell that guy? Because he thinks he's OK or she. Yeah. Well, and they probably are at the moment, but it's an ever changing landscape. And I don't think that that ground is going to stay under their feet for too much longer. And so, you know, it's like everything. You've got to be able to survey the surrounds, take an assessment uh, of what's happening and, and adjust your strategy accordingly. But what I tell that's your military background speaking. Isn't yeah, it? completely. <laughs> yeah, I love it. No, I love it. I mean, that's. I mean, that's. They teach great leadership strategy and business strategy in the military. They, they do. Yeah, Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's. Um, yeah, you know, I think you know to to quote a, a well used marketing expression: "There's riches in niches, right?" Uh, or yeah. we, we say niches here, but you know, riches in niches. And so, if you wanted to stay at that particular end, the Paddy Lund end of the spectrum, and I I understand that Paddy is very much at one end of the spectrum. But if you wanted to be a more boutique, high-end, high-touch point kind of practice, then I'd say, you know, that's a space to move into because I don't feel that the corporates are ever going to really cater to that segment of the market. It's certainly a smaller part of the market. But just as there's McDonald's and then there are five-star restaurants, you know, there can be McDonald's dentistry and five-star dental practices. So I think there'll always be some consumers who want a high-touch experience. They care greatly about how they're, you know, treated, what their patient journey's like. And so I think, you know, really, if you wanted to, you know, stay that solo-style practice, you're going to need to think a little more strategically about, you know, where you move and what sort of market you're, you're dealing with and then you know, create a marketing plan and, of course, the ability to deliver on that uh, to suit that you know, ideal patient avatar. So that would be my first thing. And, and coming back to you know, um, the other side of the spectrum, you know, you've, you've spoken about the, the you know, four to five docs and all the rest of it. I think you, know, you, can, you can get some leverage on that scale as well. But, again, you know, it's, it's a tough landscape in that middle ground. And I think you've just got to be a little bit mindful. And, you know, what, what's your experience in the United States with that, Jerry? What do you see happening? And, and what the reason I ask you is because what happens in the United States typically happens in Australia a couple of years later. And so, mm-hmm. you know, what I love about observing the United States is we get a glimpse of our future. So I'm curious to see what's been your experience. Well, you know, actually, I... I um I think in this case, uh, in dentistry in particular, we're actually lagging behind a bit, um, okay. and, and, and in this in this roll up. 
Um, so about a, I think it's been at least a year ago. I talked to a, I interviewed a dentist and I, and I, I forgive me. I, I can't remember his name, you know, thousands of dentists I yeah. talked to. And I, I can't remember his gentleman's name, but I had a great conversation with him and we talked about this very topic. And from what he was sharing with me, it appeared that, um, that Australia was probably, you know, maybe two, three years ahead of us, maybe even as far as five years ahead of us, but wow. probably not that far. Um, so in this case, I was excited to get a glimpse of what, what I thought our, our future looked like. And it, I mean, at this point I'm talking to a, a doctor a month that has sold their practice mm. and, um, more than half of those doctors are selling to a group, a large group. Mm. And it could be one of the, you know, one of the big companies like Heartland. It could be, um, one of the, you know, a smaller regional, uh, organization, um, but you know that that business model is just so different than the solo practice model. Mm. And you go from being a dentist that has to have some minimal level of leadership skills and understanding of finance and marketing and business to um, someone who has to have all of those as their primary skills. Yes. And you know, and and dentistry be damned. I mean, you don't need the dental skills. You just need the business skills. And so many doctors that I talk to that tell me, yeah, I'm going to hire an associate and then I'm going to open another location. And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, until you get your shit together at your current location, you shouldn't be thinking about anything else. Amen to that. Thank you. That you're going to open six or 10 offices. I mean, you know, you got to get your production up to about 250. You got to be open six days a week and have, you know, three doctors working, uh, three shifts a day in your current practice, yeah. then somebody ought to, you know, talk yeah. to you about a second location. Yeah, because there's all this hype, hype around scaling, right? And, and I'm all for scaling. Don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm not down on that. But what I think a lot of these guys you know, come unstuck with, in, in my opinion anyway, and I, I'm not trying to be down on these guys either, but you've got to be careful what you scale. Because sometimes, you know, in that analogy you just used is you can scale crap. And when you, <laughs> you sure when you scale crap, you just get more crap. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and the and the headaches compound. So if you already have three dental assistants you can't stand and three hygienists that you just as soon never see again, yeah. um, I'm gonna open a second location so I can get away from these women. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, You're gonna go hire the same five. Because <laughs> I'm insane. Oh, I'm a masochist and I want to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So. Like you, I'm, I mean, I feel the same thing about scaling and, it, you know, that's sort of the, you know, a buzzword and, and everybody thinks they're going to get money from the, you know, private equity people and they're going to just, you know, scale and open a bunch of practices. Um, I know some pretty sharp business businessmen. Uh, I've got one in, in mind in particular. He has a couple of practices in Wisconsin and um, this guy's got it figured out. He's got, you know, uh, 13 hygienists in two locations. Um, you know, 50, 60, I don't know how many employees he's got. He's got a bunch. Um, they're doing big numbers. They're a, um, they're a, uh, they've got economy of scale. Mm. They are, they surround the town with their two practices. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's put a lot of thought, not coincidentally or coincidentally or not coincidentally, I should say he, he has his, he has an MBA and he did his thesis on, um, uh, on the something about the the proper management of PPOs in a fee for service environment or something like this, and that yeah. that was done like twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's been playing the PPO game for twenty plus years, and I mean, you know, they 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 crush it. They they just absolutely kill it. Um, 
but he's a businessman. He hasn't, he, he, you know, he's a dentist by skill set and training, but he's a business guy. Yeah. 100%. I really agree with that. And it's interesting because you touched on a, a topic that yeah, is, is near and dear to my heart. And that is the concept of regional domination. And, and the gentleman you just described, you said his practices surround the town. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to get your take on that because I think if you were to, in inverted commas, own a location, I do think that's a good recipe for success yeah, in the right place. What do you think about that? I agree. I mean, I, in the way they set that, the way he set that up was intentional. Um, he, he initially grew his practices through buy and merge. And so he would buy a practice in an area where he wanted to be and he would merge it, you know, or, or he would move his existing practice to a, to the better location. So he's just always had his eyes out for that particular Mm. strategy. And he knew that's what he wanted. I'm going to need two offices so that when I can no longer practice, I can still pull down a mid six figure a year salary yep. and, you know, or, or whatever it is he makes. Um, he does it very well. Um, I, I saw his brand new house that was paid for uh, in cash. So <laughs> I can, I, on, on the shores of Lake Michigan. So I can tell you he does very well. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I mean, I think that's a great strategy. Um, uh, you know, it makes sense. You you can you can uh, you know use advertising that you're mailing in one part of this community to be effective in multiple parts of the community. Um, I mean, if you know if I were going to do it all over again, um, you know, I I would take a similar approach rather than just one office. Um, I would you know I'd open a couple. Um, but uh, it's you know um, I, I think it's a, I think it's a strategy that makes sense. I wrote down a note that said location is important. Um, in my when you were talking about um, you know doctors that uh, they they need to sort of decide if they're going to be what end of the spectrum they're going to be on because yeah. being in the middle is just dangerous and it's going to get more so as time goes on. Yeah. Um, if you want to go that that uh, high touch or that uh, that you know the Dr. Patty Lund route which. I admire the daylights out of that guy. He's, yes, he's got smart dudes. He is smart, and he's just got really – he's got brass balls, as they say. Yeah, he does. Um, uh, you know, somebody like that gets what they deserve, and um, and he's just – you know, he's done a – sounds like he's done a phenomenal job. But um, you have to be in the right area. You know, you can't pull off something like that, a high-touch, high-fee, you know, um, uh, uh, concierge-type practice in a location where the average income is, you know, below the national poverty level. You just can't do it. So, you, you know, so location becomes important. So you have to have congruency with your plan yeah. and reality, right? Um, uh, so, which I, I don't mean to keep talking, Jesse, but I, no, I, was, reading, I was reading a book um, uh, that was written by a, a billionaire, um, and he was talking about one of the secrets to his success has been, understanding reality and not what people believe is reality. In other words, he's had a very um, accurate picture of what reality looks like. And he said that has been one of the keys to his success is just not getting sucked into um, trends, into false, uh, you know, false deities, false gods, uh, false economic data. I mean, this guy, he's a, you know, he, he says, I live in reality. And that's one of the reasons why I've been successful. I just, I'm, I'm very careful about who I listen to and what I listen to. That's and fantastic. I think there's a lot of value in that. Just that simple thought. Yeah. And I guess the thing is sometimes though, it's, it is hard. And I don't know if you uh, agree with this or not, but sometimes it's hard to sift through what is real and what is story. Um, mm. did he provide any insights as to how he's been able to keep his feet you know, firmly planted on the ground? Was there, 
yeah, is an insight around that, or is it just he's got this innate ability to kind of see see through the the noise and get to the heart of the matter? Um, he mentioned uh, looking for um, how did he put it? I'm, I'm trying to remember how he put it exactly, but uh, I'll use the word again: congruent. Um, yeah. So facts that were congruent. So yeah. um, as an example, let's say you know um, uh, we're reading a report that says unemployment is down, yep. but yet. Uh, we're looking around and we see all these people without jobs. Uh, then you got to question yourself: What? How in the world is unemployment down if I'm visually seeing more people that yeah. are not working? Um, it, well, come to find out, we've reclassified what unemployment means, and mm -hmm. so the public doesn't pay attention to those kinds of things, mm -hmm. right? Now, here in the here in the states, that's exactly what happened during a number of years. Is um, is the the U.S. Department of Employment changed how they, they? Oh, I just lost you, mate, Jerry. Sorry, are you there? Changed how they defined unemployment and and who qualified to be defined as unemployed. And when they did that, magically enough, the statistics improved. And so, so this guy would look at that and go, "Well, the evidence is showing something totally different than what the storyline is." So I'm going with the evidence and to hell with the storyline. And I think dentists need to look around and, and understand that most of the time, whether they're talking to colleagues or they're talking to someone that's trying to sell them something, mm. they need to do their own independent analysis and and really just you know ask themselves, is this is this a fairy tale? Is this reality? You know, am I just am I just being a sucker? Am I being gullible? You know, um, because this doesn't seem like it's true or it could be true. It's kind of like the guy that says, you know, or the, 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 the salesman that'll tell you, you know, oh, we can get you all the patients you need, 100 new patients a month. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know what? They, you got to read the fine print. And then you need to also go and find a half dozen people that can vouch, you know, that that's true and, and look at their statistics, you know, actually see the stats. And um, <clears throat> most of us don't do that. We, we're lazy. We're looking for shortcuts. We're looking for the easy button, as they say. Yeah. <clears throat> and, there, and there isn't an easy button. And I really like that as well because, you know, it comes back to everyone's looking for a silver bullet. You know, if I pay this marketing guy or girl, you know, X dollars a month, then, you know, I've done my bit and their job is now to give me 100 new patients a month. And, of course, it doesn't always pan out that way. What I'm really interested in talking about was data. You spoke about, you know, looking at the evidence. And one of the things that's a... Uh, a common phrase that we hear in dentistry over in Australia is evidence-based dentistry, evidence-based medicine, all that sort of you know thing. And what right. I'm always curious about is, you know, we're so willing to look for evidence in our clinical day-to-day -day procedures, you know, why we do what we do from a clinical standpoint. But there are so many practice owners flying by the seat of their pants without any data to make decisions. And it feels like they're flying blind. Yeah, they've got this cockpit. They're in, they're, they're in an you know F sixteen flying at Mark three with a blindfold on, and you know hoping they don't crash. And you know, I guess what I wanted to ask you around that Jerry, is, what do you see as the key data points to really keep an eye on in a practice? You've obviously had the the experience of owning a business. You've also had the experience of you know, helping many dentists with their business in terms of marketing and other things as well. What do you see as the key data points or the key bits of evidence we should be looking for? Well, um, uh, I think there's, for me, there's a couple of different answers. There's the marketing side and then there's, you know, the, the actual business side. Sure. Um, 
even though, you know, marketing is part of the business, it's, um, if I can, I'll start in the business and I'll, I'll maybe just share what I looked at. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, you know, coming at this from, from the standpoint of, I was 100% unable to influence in any way production. Mm. Um, the minute that I would talk to a dentist about, Hey, you know, you're really not producing what we need you to produce or, um, you know, why did you do this three surface filling when we could have done a crown? You know, mm. I'm, I never, ever one time had that conversation. And, um, anytime a dentist would come to me and ask, uh, or talk, want to talk about a case, I just said, you know, I, I can't talk about this. It's really nothing I can add. And, you know, you just need to trust your professional judgment or go ask a colleague because it's nothing I can do. So, uh, so I couldn't influence the big thing in, in dentistry, which is production, right? Yeah. I mean, without any production, you got squat. Yep. Um, yeah. So all I could do is just put patients in the practice and hire what I thought were good people to, you know, to help run the business. And so my perspective of this is totally different than what the average dentist is going to be. So I looked uh, every day, I got a copy of the day sheet. And mm -hmm. so Dentrix, we use Dentrix software and I'd get a, I'd get a copy of the day sheet faxed to me along with deposits um, adjustments, you know, all those kinds of things, all the reports that, that come from, you know, wrapping up a day. Yep. And I looked at what was our ratio of production to collection. I looked at numbers of new patients. Um, and then I scanned the day sheet to make sure that a, it was accurate, that there weren't mispostings to, you know, sometimes, you know, like maybe, a, a an exam got credited to a hygienist and it should have been credited to the dentist. I mean, those kinds of things. So I just scanned it really quick. It'd take me maybe five minutes at most. Um, but I was looking for, uh, making sure that our deposits were hitting the baseline every day, mm. at least what we needed to cover, you know, our overhead for the day. Um, and I could tell you our overhead to the, to the dollar, um, on a monthly basis in 2017, it was about 48,350 in 2018 for the first five months and 10 days that I owned it. Uh, we had ratcheted that overhead down to about 45,500 bucks a month. And that's on a, you know, that's a four day a week. Uh, dental office. Yeah, so nice. that's a pretty low overhead for those folks who know anything about, you know, what it costs to run their practice. Yeah, it's, it's good. It's tight. Yeah, it's very tight. I mean, we had, you know, no, no frills, no bells and whistles. We certainly were not, you know, running skeleton, you know, a skeleton crew or anything, but we were just very careful and very prudent. I mean, after 15 years, you kind of figure some of that stuff out. Yeah. Um, and so I looked at, uh, I looked at production collections and that ratio and I knew based on history, what that ratio should be. Um, and, and what that, what I'm looking for there is if we produce, you know, let's say we produce a hundred thousand, we should be collecting and depositing into the bank at least 82,000 at mm -hmm. a minimum. Mm -hmm. So we're right around that 82 to 85%, you know, production to collections ratio. So, you know, I knew that every dollar that we did in production, we should be depositing between 82 and 85 cents into the bank. So I'm, I, I watched that like a hawk because I knew if that if there was a problem that it was going to show there. So, you know, if I saw that our, our deposits were down, that told me a couple of things. Um, you know, number one, nobody's asking for the money and they should be asking for the money and they shouldn't be embarrassed. By the way, one of the best front office people you can hire is a bartender or someone that has worked in food service because they're not afraid to ask for the money. Isn't they're amazing, perfectly yeah. comfortable, you know. Um, and so. Uh, we had some, I had the last gal that I hired for the front office was a bartender and she was a little, a little rough when we first got her, um, as an employee, but you know, over time she became very polished. Um, and our collections were the strongest they'd ever been, uh, during that period of time when I, you know, before I sold the business. So, well um, 
So I look at that ratio. I also look at numbers of new patients. I know, you know, instinctively over, you know, 15 years, you kind of figure out how many new patients you need a month based on the doctor load. Um, so I'd make sure that we had at least that many calling um, and, and making appointments. I looked at appointment to call ratios. So if we're generating 100 phone calls, we should have X number of appointments. You know, yeah. we should have, you know, if it's a new patient opportunity, we should be at least booking 83% or 84% mm-hmm. of new patient phone calls. Yep. So that was a number I looked at. Um, and we measured all those. Um, I also, uh, I'd look at, you know, I've looked at our profit and loss statement every single Monday morning without fail, um, and our balance sheet. So I, I was pretty in on oh, accounts receivable. Um, yeah. we watched that a hawk. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I had a, I had a business partner in the dental office and that was really where he focused a lot of his attention on was the AR. And so we, we watched that AR, we kept it usually within, you know, 30 days to 45 days uh, of production. So as an example, you know, our AR, if we were producing a hundred grand a month, our AR never, never exceeded 150. Um, but I'm more comfortable with it being about 80, (laughs) you know, a little Mm -hmm. less than one month of production. Mm -hmm. So, uh, we charged late fees and we charged interest and that helped our patients prioritize, uh, paying us. Um, we used auto draft or auto debit ACH, you know, to make sure we're getting payments, um, credit cards, whatever. Um, and so, you know, those are, those were the, the big things that I watched. And there are so many statistics that you can pay attention to. Um, you know, like it, what's your hygienist doing a day? Um, ours were pretty consistent, um, at about 1500 a day. Um, I talked to a dentist the other day and his hygiene department was doing 400 a day. And I said, what are those, what are those folks doing all day long? Yeah, I mean, yeah. how can they only be doing 400 bucks a day? So, you know, I mean, things like that and doctor production per hour, we would, you know, we would occasionally look at it just to see, you know, make comparisons with past doctors that we'd had or whatever. Um, and, uh, and that, that was pretty much it. I mean, you know, you can run the business if you're, if you're paying attention to those, those key metrics. And like I said, there's so many others to, to analyze and look at, but those are what I used, um, really on a, on a, you know, 30,000 foot view, um, mm. looking in. Um, that's what I use to, you know, to make sure that we were on track. But yeah. like I said, you can, you can analyze it to death. Well, you, you certainly can. And there's no shortage of data is there. There's, you know, endless amounts of data that you can look at and, and analyze. Uh, I'm curious yeah. just to, um, quiz you a little bit, cause I think, I suspect there might be some regional differences here between the United States and Australia, but I, I just wanted to uncover the, the collection and, um, invoiced uh, difference. Yeah. I think you said 83 or 82% uh, was what you collected on what you produced. Um, where did the other 18 or 17 or 18% go? Was that in AR or was that in, you know, discounts or was that in, you know, um, insurance rebates or what, what was the, the gap? That's a great question. So, um, the majority of those are going to be insurance discounts and new patient discounts. Yeah. So, um, you know, a new patient would walk into our practice and instead of spending 300 bucks, $300 on a new patient exam and a profi, you know, um, we had a, a new patient exam offer for $39, uh, and that would just be a comprehensive exam only. Yeah. And then nine times out of 10, they would upgrade and add a cleaning at a bit of a reduced uh, discount, uh, not much of a reduced discount on the cleaning, but just a little bit, mm-hmm. um, mostly to get them to schedule and experience our office. That was, you know, that was yep. the whole goal get is them to get the them door. in the door. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, uh, when you run, 
you know, 80, 90 patients through or 50 patients through and you're, you know, you're knocking off 200 bucks on every new patient exam. That's, you know, that's where it comes. Uh, that yeah. adds up quick. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you've got insurance discounts. So if you can like we were a, a preferred provider, a PPO, yeah. uh, with, um, with Delta, which is the 800 pound gorilla here in the States. Yeah. Yeah. We've yeah, right. They're they're everywhere. There's one everywhere. Um, and so we would end up, you know, writing off a bit um, from that as well. But that was the only insurance company we were ever contracted with um, other than uh, we did for a period of time uh, some um, national health care uh, plan. And that was a very, very low reimbursement, you know, literally a third of what our normal fees were. So we did that for a while. Um, and then, um, that was an interesting experience. And then we eventually just killed it all together and got off of that. But that was massive discounts there. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you're talking huge discounts. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so that's, that's where that difference comes from. Okay. And so for us, you know, I, most of the doctors here in the States, um, are around the 85 percentile. Yeah. Um, you know, if their uh, collections, uh, ratio, uh, production collections ratio is about 85%. So, okay, yeah. cool. Ours would be a little higher than that. Uh, and of course, it varies depending on the relationship with insurance companies and so on. So, um, yeah, in a in a non uh, preferred provider arrangement, yeah, you know, the collection and invoicing is almost the same. Um, yep. At, but it, when you're discounting through various rebates and whatnot, then yeah, you know, tips typically drops down to yeah you know, 90, 95, 94 around that kind of space. Uh-huh. But you know uh-huh. that's not a huge difference. Um, I wanted to just ask you then because if you've got uh, this difference between collection and invoicing, then coming to you know, a pet topic that you and I both have is retention. Uh, it becomes really critically important then to retain those patients, right? Because over time, as they begin to know you, like you, and trust you, uh, that's really where the discretionary spend comes. It may not come in that first visit. Um, so the retention maths becomes important because year on year, as the relationship with the practice grows, their likelihood of accepting treatment increases and, and revenue follows it. Would you agree with that concept? I would agree hundred percent. And that is a point where, uh, unfortunately a lot of docs, uh, fall short sighted. And, and I think some of it is because they just haven't, they haven't been trained to understand, or they haven't been exposed to the concepts, the simple concept that you just talked about. And it's one of the reasons why, you know, doctors would come to me and they'd ask, Hey, should I join a PPO or should I join this PPO or, you know, should I just remain fee for service? And, um, you know, it, it, there, there's a lot of, uh, of consideration that a doctor should make before they dive into the, you know, into a PPO relationship and, and sign that contract. But they've got to understand that, you know, f- my perspective is always this, an insurance company's job in my mind is to bring me a patient. Mm. It's marketing. I'm going to give that patient a discount because the insurance company brought them to me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give them a discount on th- on this group of services. But there's a whole other group of services that I don't have to discount that the insurance company doesn't cover. And if I can help that patient understand the value of getting those other services, then that's where I'm going to make my big money. And most docs just haven't grasped that concept. It's it's um, it's a short. It seems to be, to me, often to be a short-sighted vision. In other words, they're only looking at transaction one and two. They're not looking at what we call the lifetime value of that patient. Mm. Um, which brings me a question that I'd I'd love to have you answer at some point is you know kind of you know what your thoughts are on the lifetime value of a patient is in Australia mm. um, versus the U.S. And because to me, the longer that relationship lasts. 
Now we're talking retention. The more value that relationship brings to me in the bottom line, but also, I mean, just from the, is it, is the word altruistic? Just from that relationship, just yeah. from a human interaction, enjoyment, fun relationship. Isn't it? Yeah. Right? Enjoyment. It comes later in the relationship. It's like, you know, it, when you first marry your love of your life, you, you know, it, it's a fun thing and it's all exciting and, you know, it's, you know, whatever newly, newlyweds do uh, all that good stuff. Um, I wanted to say the word sex at least once in this, um, in this There it is. It's, it's right there. So, so, you know, I'm a Navy guy, mate, so that just means, yeah, you can swear or cuss probably a thousand times in a sentence and I won't blink. I can guarantee, okay. guarantee it. Uh, to me, the value in, in relationships comes later. Like the relationship that my wife and I have after 20 years is is so much more powerful um, with time and it gets more, it gets stronger with time and with age. And I think about, you know, just standard run of the mill everyday relationships with patients and those improve and solidify. And, and we make deposit, I call this, I have this concept that I discuss when retention about emotional equity, mm -hmm. I call it E squared. So we develop this emotional equity with our patients over, over years of, of, of interaction and this intimate you know, it's a very intimate uh, thing, you know, when, when you're working on a patient and you're in their mouth. And I mean, you're all up in their face, literally. Yeah, literally, yeah. And they're allowing you. You're like, they're just laying there and they're allowing you to be that close to them. There's bound to be some, you know, some uh, strong bonds formed um, because of the trust level. And so we really aren't able to take advantage of the equity that that, that, that relationship, that emotional equity that that relationship builds until later nor should we be able to take advantage of that until a future date, right? I mean, it's that's how relationships are supposed to work. It's exactly. give and take, it's time. Yep. So uh, for me, when I think of retention, uh, the longer you can keep a patient interested in you and, the, and, and, and at least the perception that you're interested in them, the better it is not just for them, but for you as well. And the, and the healthier it is for your practice. So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, there's, there's just not enough emphasis put on patient retention. And, and that's unfortunate because to me, that's where all the money's at. And, and by the way, we, we actually are able now to prove that that's where the money's at in a, in a piece of software we just literally finished up, um, about a week ago. Okay. So anyway, so, so yeah. it's a really interesting thing, Jerry, because like you, I'm sure you get questions, uh, like me where, it's a case of, you know, Jerry, should I be running um, a direct mail campaign or do you think I should be running a Facebook ad or should I be on Snapchat or Instagram? And all of those tactical questions that come up all the time because, again, we're looking for that you know, easy button uh, or the mm. silver bullet. And for me, you know, I had a, I was running a webinar last night and, and one of the things that came up was uh, one of our, our newer clients was asking about Facebook campaigns. So it's a really legitimate question. There's nothing wrong with the question. But my, my go-to answer, and as unsexy as this sounds, is to always plug the retention leaks first. Because until you do that, you know, the marketing efforts that you end up doing in an external manner, whether it's, you know, direct mail or Facebook or, you know, whatever, um, you know, they're largely wasted or they're potentially wasted because, you know, we're opening the front door really widely to welcome new people in, but we're equally letting the, the back door stay open and, and people are exiting and it becomes, in some cases, a zero-sum game and it just seems pointless. 
Yeah. Um, well, I mean, you nailed it on the head. I, I don't have anything else to add uh, to that because I mean, you literally nailed it on the head because to me, you're right. I, I would, I would only plus what you said, um, by saying, you know, until you plug the holes in the bucket and, and stop the, and stop the people walking out the back door and finding out why they're leaving. I mean, look, the only reason someone should ever leave Dr. Green's practice is if they're dead or they move out of town. Mm -hmm. If they move out of town, it better be like, you know, a plane ride away. (laughs) Otherwise, they better get their butt in their car and show up (laughs) in your practice, right? But see, nobody has that, nobody has that deep conviction that I am not gonna lose a patient no matter what. I've talked to one dentist in 22 years, one dentist, and and interestingly enough, he's now become a, a, a fairly well-known um, practice management guy. He's opened 14 dental offices in his in his life, and he sold a huge chunk of that yep. uh, of his of his organization to a big DSO, a dental services organization. Yep. Um, you know, yep. one of the corporates. And I mean, he doesn't pull any punches about why he did it or what he's doing. Um, but I asked, I did a podcast show with him, and I asked him. I said, "Well, what do you do when a patient leaves your practice?" He goes. I know every single patient that leaves every one of my 14 practices Mm -hmm. and I know why they left. I said, you know what, (laughs) doc, you are the first person I've ever talked to that could answer that question. And I mean, to me, I mean, he's got it, you know, he's, he's got it. I mean, if somebody leaves, you damn well better know why they left and you better fix it if you can. Um, it's that important. Um, which kind of brings me around uh, to the question of lifetime value. I mean, what, what have you sort of either um, estimated or have hard facts on? What What is the lifetime value of a patient to an Australian dental practice? Well, I think, yeah, it's more of an estimate rather than a hard fact because, um, again, I would say there's some variability from practice to practice. But, you know, in the people that I work with, you know, the lifetime value is, you know, certainly in the tens and tens of thousands of dollars, uh, you know, multiple ten, uh, tens of thousands of dollars because, you know, typically if – you know, whatever age they join your practice. If, let's say someone joins your practice in their mid-30s. Typically, by the time they're in their 40s, they're starting to need some restorative work. So there's you know some units of crown and bridge, maybe a root canal. Uh, you know, if something goes awry, maybe an implant or a bridge. But certainly, I would suggest it's well over ten thousand dollars, probably closer to you know, upwards of twenty grand, uh, and and maybe even more for some people. But the thing that I really feel that I've got a, a better measure on rather than lifetime value is a shorter time frame, which I, I really, the lifetime value thing I really use a lot. But I, what I use more is the five-year value because for me that gives me a, a start and end point. And for us, the five-year value, uh, and I can tell you very candidly in our practice, the five-year value for our patients is certainly in that you know $15,000 mark on average. And uh, and that's you know significant, but most of that, spend comes in years four and five. Oh man so if you weren't taking care of those folks you would not be seeing that type of lifetime value correct correct yeah absolutely now now of course not every single patient is going to need that kind of work but the principle is the same and and here's the other thing too jerry is a not only if you don't take care of that patient you're not going to see that kind of work but b you're going to miss the referrals that come from that patient as well so yeah. you know it's a double-edged sword if you get this right your practice can grow exponentially in terms of revenue but equally in terms of patient flow and so yeah my big thing is if you're if you're going to run an external marketing campaign you know whether it's you know direct mail facebook adwords you know, whatever 
for me, I'm always wanting to turn that one patient into multiple patients. I want to get my cost of acquisition you know, much lower. And so yeah. for me, the internal marketing uh, really is a multiplier. Uh, and so that's really what we focus on. Yes, we do external marketing, but the emphasis is always saying, okay, if we're going to get one patient from AdWords, I want to turn that one patient into three. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you're right about, um, we call it PAC, patient acquisition cost. And um, when we look at a, a practice that has a rather high acquisition cost, I mean, you know, the next thing we ask them is talk to me about your referrals. Yeah. Um, because if you don't have the interest or the knowledge or understanding of what retention means, you're not going to be getting the referrals you should be getting. You're not asking for them. You have no systems in place. You're not doing a monthly newsletter. You're not, you know, whatever. All the 101 things we can do. Um, you're missing out on uh, on not only lowering your patient acquisition cost by cutting you know cutting it at least in half or in thirds or tenths or whatever. Um, you're just leaving money on the table and you're costing yourself a fortune that isn't isn't necessary. Um, so I mean, I, you know, it's so it is. It's refreshing to talk to someone that gets this, and you know, and it's 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 so sad because I mean, most doctors don't think beyond that that initial year you know of transactions and so one of the things we're focused on here is at jerry jones direct is um is showing them through our software by the way i i don't know if this name is going to stick or not but the software we developed we're calling it truth serum <laughs> because i love because, that i mean it's just it's showing exactly what's going on i mean um Basically, it starts with call monitoring and then all yeah. the data that we gather from that and then production data and collection. You know, anyway, it's, it's quite fascinating. But in this software, we can show them the value of a single patient, you know, in, yeah, nice. in not just in 40, 60 and 90 days, but in, in years. And I like your idea. So like your lifetime value, you know, saying a period of five years. I love that the defined period of time. Um, and that's sort of how I measured it in my dental office. What, you know, and, and we would look at a five year period and look at referrals, you know, I mean, you can't do that with every single patient that walks in the door, but it wasn't uncommon for, you know, every fifth patient to refer at least two people. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, when you look at statistics like that, you, you, I mean, you realize how fast you can grow. Um, if you plug the, if you plug the holes in the bucket and you really pay attention and focus on uh, retention and referrals, it's just, it's just, it's a no brainer. Yeah, it, it, it is. It makes a huge amount of sense. Hey Jerry, we've covered a lot of territory today. We've, we've gone uphill and down Dale and, uh, mate, I wanted to, as we, as we begin to wrap up our conversation today, I wanted to ask you, um, Knowing what you know now, going because you know, you've had that experience of owning a dental practice, and of course, listen, there'll be plenty of docs listening to this show from either your end or, or our end. You, what would be if you had to have a, a billboard where you said, you know, the gospel according to Jerry? Um, what would be the you know two or three things that you would say to docs as they're going about their practice ownership journey to really make it you know worthwhile and work for them so they create. You know, true wealth for themselves. They create great experiences for their patients, uh, and of course, they get to do the work that they enjoy. They get to have that sweet spot. What would be one or two things that you would uh, say to the guys and girls listening that would make a difference to them on their day-to-day journey? Um, it's not about you. Yeah, that would be one. Wow, um, that's really powerful too. You are not your patient. So what, you know, and, and to go deeper into that one is, you know, it, you don't know what your patients want. And so you better ask them because mm-hmm. you're a dentist and you don't know. 
Mm. Um, so, you know, you're not your patient. Um, the last, the third one I might throw up there, um, uh, be curious. Mm. That's really, really important. I mean, I, I look at where I've grabbed my biggest breakthroughs. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I can't take credit for any of them. I've stolen every great idea I've ever had and whoever gave it to me stole it from somebody else. And so curiosity, um, has been a huge, I think it's made a huge impact, uh, on, you know, just being curious. You asked me earlier a question after I'd made a statement and I thought it was a very smart question, you know, what, and it was about the billionaire, you know, did he go into what, you know, what, he, how he measured reality or what, you know, what he, you know, you sort of asked a follow-up question mm. and, and I thought, well, that's the right, that's the right next question. It isn't, you know, going on to whatever thought you had next. It was, you know, diving deeper into something of value and, and showing curiosity. And I think, um, I think oftentimes dentists aren't curious enough about things outside their wheelhouse, outside their comfort zone. Um, because in reality, I mean, dentistry is such a tiny, tiny slice of anyone's life that is not a dentist. Yeah. And, um, I think by being curious and, um, and opening yourself up to things outside of your comfort zone will make you a better dentist and they're going to make you a, definitely a, a better communicator and business person. Yeah. I really, I really resonate with that mate. And, uh, interestingly enough, you mentioned that your good ideas, you know, you've borrowed from other people and it's the same with me. And I have to tell you that just about every good idea I've ever had for my dental practice has come from outside of dentistry as well. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I, yeah. The dental profession is, is wonderful and I'm eternally grateful to it. But uh, there is so much wisdom and so many insights to be had from other businesses and other industries that are directly applicable to, to our own. And I think... Sometimes we, we could cast our, our gaze a little further afield and, and look for those ideas and, and, you know, pinch them and make them our own. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. Yep. Cool. For sure. Hey, Jerry, you have been incredibly generous with your time and, uh, and your wisdom and your insights and your knowledge. And, mate, I have to say this has been one of the most fun podcasts and enjoyable conversations I've had for a long time. Uh, and I mean that with all sincerity because I've had some tremendous guests on my show and I'm grateful to all of them. Uh, and this one has been a lot of fun. So thank you. I, I have really enjoyed our conversation today. I have as well. And um, it, it always is more exciting and interesting when you talk to someone who sort of understands where you're coming from. <laughs> uh, and, and you definitely, you you know, I feel like you get me and I, I certainly get where you're coming from. Um, it's It's been uh, an enjoyable time for me as well. And I've just had a blast. Yeah, thank you, mate. Listen, I really appreciate it. And uh, let's catch up. And, and I must say, tell your daughter when she's making those Anzac biscuits, save some for us because they're, they're delicious. I will tell her. I'm actually looking forward to going in and having one here in just a few minutes. <laughs> well, enjoy that, mate. Enjoy it. Thanks. Cheers.